Hello listeners and welcome back to Quote Unquote with KK. We have interrupted our regular podcasting recordings and shows to bring up this episode given the developments at the Russia and Ukraine borders and to calibrate and understand what's going to happen as a fallout of this conflict in the Asia Pacific region and the geopolitics in the Asian region. To talk to us, I have called back Parak Khanna, who had talked to us in our first season of quote-unquote with KK, when the Indo-Chinese conflict was at its peak. Let me just walk you through Parag's profile just for a recall. Parag is a leading global strategy advisor, world traveler and bestseller. He has written several books, including his latest book, Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. And he has been part of several committees and prestigious forums, such as Young Global Leader of the World Economic Forum. He has served on World Economic Forum Global Future Council, on Mobility Global Agenda Council on Geoeconomics. And he has been on the advisory board of its Future of Urban Development Initiatives. He serves also on board of trustees of New Cities Foundation, Council of American Geopolitical Society, and has been an advisory board of independent diplomat. He is also acknowledged as an OECD future leader. Parag has spoken on several platforms such as CNN, BBC, CNBC, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera and other broadcasters. In 2010, he was the first video blogger for foreignpolicy.com. Currently, Parag runs his own firm, Future Map, which is a data and scenario based strategic advisory firm. Parag has lived in India, in UAE and across the world in the US and Europe. And he has traveled over 150 countries as part of his work and pursuit. So I welcome back Parag on the show and would love to discuss on the issues of Asian trade and geopolitics in the face of Russia-Ukraine conflict. So welcome to Quote Unquote with KK. Parag, it's it's pleasure to have you back. And as again, you're coming in at a time when there is conflict at its peak. I want to now bring the same issue what we faced between India and China in our season one. Now between Ukraine and Russia spilling over to the whole of Asia in terms of the geopolitics and trade wars that may happen. What's your view? What's going to happen? Well, you know, I mean, perhaps someone could change their view every single day. But to be honest with you, given that the borders in the former Soviet Union in general, and also the tensions between Russia and Ukraine date back quite a while, obviously decades, I think it's fairly clear what the minimum is that Putin will settle for even though the war has not gone according to his plan. And those would definitely include the the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, probably the Black Sea coastal corridor to Crimea, and obviously recognition of his already existing possession of Crimea. That's the bare minimum. In addition to that, obviously, there's so much destruction. But I would say institutionally, Ukraine might have its accelerated membership in the European Union. And, you know, it could well be that after there is settlement, and depending on what the settlement is, maybe indeed, even though Ukraine has said that 
NATO membership is not likely in the near future, perhaps it will happen as a way of saying to Putin, if you want a Cold War, a new Cold War, you will get a new Cold War. And so that might happen as well. Now, there are multiple scenarios that are playing out. And one of the scenarios that our ALGO also simulated was if the escalation continued, there was a 10% chance of a nuclear escalation. And if this continued, how... China and Russia play together and would the world go into a multipolar and reduce the growth of globalization. So these are kind of some of the scenarios that were playing in terms of what would happen to Asia, including India. What are your views about all these scenarios that people are playing out and simulating based on their algos? What's your view? What what do you understand about uh, the situation that will pan out? Well, I, I mean, I do a lot of scenario planning work and I think we have to be careful to separate the conversation about nuclear scenarios, nuclear weapons use, and the military dynamics as they pertain to nuclear weapons. Then the issue about China and Russia and how China might react to Russia using nuclear weapons of any kind. And then the third is the question about globalization and its impact on Asia more broadly. These are three different things. Of course, they are related to each other. But if you are building a scenario and you are creating a causality, you know, and you are positing that Russia's use of nuclear weapons means that there will be all-out war and then China will have to formally condemn it. But in any case, Russia will become even more dependent on China and that therefore, in any case, the concerns about the spread of warfare will lead to decoupling and deglobalization. You can make that argument. You can build that scenario. But I personally will want to see the probabilities and the weight that you are ascribing to the linkages between these scenarios. Because quite frankly, it's far too complex to assume that there is some linear pathway there. Um, so I just urge people to think about each of these dynamics internally first and get the story right. There is a higher probability that Russia and China become closer, irrespective of whether or not nuclear weapons are used. The impact on Asia will be less than people think, because Asia is largely internally driven at this point with very high degrees of trade, of investment, of infrastructure, and so forth. And even though some Asian countries are turning against Russia, like Japan and Australia, and other countries are leaning more or to support uh, Russia, like China and India, of course, that doesn't mean that the dynamics within Asia are not continuing to progress. Excellent. I want to pick up a few threads about how Russia has been playing this whole trade and the geopolitics and moving or de-risking it with Europe towards Asia. If you see last year, almost 90% of what Russia traded with Europe is what Russia traded with Asia. And obviously, with the depreciating ruble and the free trade agreements that Russia has enabled, do you think these sanctions are going to make a big impact on Russia? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you know, there's the difference between the impact of sanctions on the central bank versus sanctions on individuals and obviously on the private sector, banks, financial institutions. The impact of sanctions that relate to energy is far less than the impact of withdrawal of access for Russian Visa and MasterCard, for example. So these are ultimately quite different. The transmission mechanisms, the rollout, whether they affect government uh, officials, the government itself, state itself. 
and the people are three different levels on which to to assess all of this. So I don't think it's a uniform uh, thing. Obviously, you know, what has been called the financial nuclear option of sanctioning the central bank has been used. And that's really powerful and impressive that it's been done. So that's one dimension of it. But when you look at energy, it's quite clear that the import of European of, of Russian oil and gas continues very, very strong at high US dollar prices at the moment. So those sanctions are less meaningful than they appear. But no doubt it's uh, as always with sanctions, the people who suffer the most because of the collapse of the ruble, because they cannot access their financial resources, their savings, uh, because they find it difficult, of course, to either money abroad or themselves abroad. And that's no surprise. Bottom line, though, is that Russia can endure this longer than people in the West like to think, quite frankly, because even if you freeze half their reserves, 300 billion is still a lot. Secondly, they're still bringing the oil money. Thirdly, they can uh, still continue various forms of trade and reallocate with, uh, you know, to China and other countries. There is even talk, of course, about the rupee ruble, you know, sort of trade uh, corridor and, and so forth. So Quite frankly, as we've seen with Iran and other states, or let's not forget India after the nuclear tests uh, 24 uh, years ago, the fact is that there is greater resilience and robustness of states uh, than people who are imposing the sanctions like to believe. They like to believe that, oh, we're sanctioning them. They must collapse. They must heal. They must obey. But, you know, we know from Cuba, uh, Syria, Iran, Russia, even India, Pakistan, North Korea, you know, these regimes have outlasted eight, eight consecutive American administrations in some cases. So I think we should right. be, uh, I think that the real lesson is that we haven't yet learned how to calibrate sanctions the way we ideally should. Parag, I want to understand once again the win-loss scenarios if these sanctions continue and the world continues to pose or go hard Russia. And do you think that these sanctions will change the whole trade and the supply chain uh, of the world itself if it can maybe for another few more months or years together like you said in case of india we, we were able to come out much stronger does that uh, really mean that russia could emerge much stronger and would have a much stronger geopolitical and trade influence in asia largely no but Potentially, yes. So let me explain. First of all, Russia is not an economically connected or a financially connected power. Of the great powers in the world, it is by far the least connected in terms of its, you know, sort of degree of financial and trade interdependence with all regions of the world. It's quite frankly minimal outside of energy. Will Russia be more dependent on exporting that energy and importing goods, whether it is 5G telecom equipment or automobiles or tractors and so forth, machinery? Uh, will it be more dependent on Asia for those imports? Yes, it will. So Russia will, by, by definition, become more of an appendage of Asia. But that was happening all along. I've been writing about that for 15 years, literally for 15 years. There was an episode when Barack Obama, more than a decade ago, announced the so-called pivot to Asia. And Vladimir said to him, we already pivoted to Asia, right? So in a way, we're just accelerating the something that was already underway. Great. I want to now understand what the whole global supply chain impact, which was already impacted due to the COVID and the China 
crisis around the COVID. How do you think this will further impact the global supply chain and trade? And do you think the world would need to now go into another adjustment on supply chain disruptions if this war continues? So or the, even of, the sanction continues? Yeah. In terms of specific supply chains, again, there's no question that Europe was already trying to diversify its energy imports to focus more on alternatives and renewables to bring in more gas from North Africa and the Arctic, and even LNG deliveries from the United States and so forth. So all of that will accelerate. But again, remember that it was already happening, right? It will be an acceleration of things that were already happening. So uh, I think that global supply chains will not be as affected. Agriculture is the real story because Russia and Ukraine are very large food exporter. In fact, yesterday evening, I was doing an event with the Ukrainian ambassador to Singapore. And she said, remember that one out of every 10 loaves of bread in the world comes from Ukraine. And let's also remember mm -hmm. that in the year 2010, when Russia had droughts and it, it blocked export of wheat, six months later, you had the Arab Spring. Already, we're seeing that Egypt and other countries that are very dependent on Russian wheat imports are seeing prices rise and that will be politically destabilizing. So when we talk about supply chains, we have to talk about which supply chain. Are you talking about oil? Are you talking about gas? Are you talking about wheat? Uh, are you talking about uh, other you know, goods and services? I think we're talking about all. Obviously, the oil and gas dynamics people or the world has smartened, including India, after the ban on Iran. So India is obviously going ahead and going to buy and your oil from Russia at, at lower rates and at preferential rates. So oil per se is not going to be disrupting, I believe, oil and gas, I, I believe. But what happens to the manufactured goods, other like tea exports from India to Russia or arms and defense supplies uh, to India and many other countries where Russian uh, manufactured defense products are, are exported out. And similarly, fertilizer, which is the main product that Russia supplies to the world, which could actually create a global food crisis as well. And then lastly, you have the coal and steel supply to the world from Russia. So yeah. these are, I guess, we could probably bucket it up in terms of primary agri-produce, primary products, converted value-added products, and then yeah. defense supplies, arms and defense supplies from Russia. And vice versa. So let's let's distinguish between primary, you know, commodities versus value-added goods. When it comes to the primary commodities, the fact is that these are the ones that you tend to have a way of finding outlets through commodities traders, through Russia, through Chinese kind of backdoor deals and so forth. So these things will find their way to the market. And, you know, of course, especially in those industries, you can use various collateralization and, and swap agreements, even bartering in some ways. You know, Iran has been bartering gold and other commodities and other, other forms via Turkey for years, despite sanctions. Correct. So I think that Russian fertilizer, Russian, Russian steel, Russian commodities, Russian you know, oil and gas, coal, these things will get out. These things will get out. They've made it to North Korea. They make it everywhere. In terms of defense, here, obviously, things are more tricky because, I mean, first of all, Russian hardware has not exactly been performing impressively in uh, Ukraine. That's one. But even if it was, I think there's a misperception in India that, that Russia is at a steady state and a you know long-term strategic defense procurement partner. But it's very, very obvious to see that India's procurement from Western 
Western powers and allied powers more generally exceeds defense imports from Russia. And the trend is markedly in favor of the United States and Israel and Japan and you know European countries and and and, and, you know, and, and against Russia. So I don't think that sacrificing defense you know imports from Russia to the extent that that is even done is really going to be a big deal. So this is an opportunity for India perhaps to say, hold on, let's try to get away with the essential you know, energy, food, and other kinds of trade with Russia and get it while it's cheap and even set up a test case of a bilateral currency uh, agreement with Russia. But we can, you know, India can satisfy the West if it cuts back on the defense procurement side, which is probably the smarter thing to do anyway, because, you know, the further you look into the future, the less Russian weapons are going to be useful. Got it. And obviously now India is running the risk of a ban because of certain procurement that India had signed with Russia before the escalation on the missile systems, the S-missile systems. So uh, obviously we may run the risk depending on what sides we take and what we procure, whether from Russia or from the West. So we are in a sticky situation uh, either way. But do you think would lead to some sort of polarization in the world even beyond the sanctions, once the sanctions are fully lifted out, whether on India or any of the Western world, banning or, or restricting trade with Russia, do you think this would lead into another sort of, you mentioned uh, the second Cold War or a polarization across the West and this side of the world or Asia? You know, these things, again, sanctions tend to not be universally applied, especially in the case of a large power that has many borders that particularly if it's bordering Asia and Asian countries are still willing to trade with it. We cannot use the word sanctions as if it is synonymous with universal binding and forced sanctions. So that's one thing to remember. Secondly, the longevity uh, of these sanctions fades considerably over time as the momentum is lost and the unity starts to fray and fade. Uh, that's another thing. And then third is, of course, we cannot make a linear projection around this because it will depend on the characteristics of the political settlement. If the political settlement is one in which Russia actually withdraws its forces beyond the territories that we have discussed earlier, it will seek to secure permanently. It could well be that there might be, you know, an early end or tapering of these sanctions. So really, quite frankly, there are a lot of variables. What do you feel from a political point of view? Was the Trump era better or the Biden era better for the world? Oh, my goodness. No, I, I, I view these things much more in an evolutionary way. It's actually uh, very often, and I've been noticing this really ever since the election of George W. Bush 22 years ago, when people would blame, you know, administrations for large swings in the global order. Now, of course, it is true that the world could be a very different place if Al Gore had been elected president in the year 2000. You might not have had the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, and so forth, even with the 9-11 attacks. You definitely would not have had the invasion of Iraq, that's for sure. And that obviously has had many consequences. But you cannot hold all else equal. And then when it comes to, you know, Trump having been elected over Hillary, Obviously, immediately, there are certain negative consequences to that in terms of the trade war and tariffs and so forth with China and so on. But I do think that it's overly deterministic. Quite frankly, the way I view the world is that 
Russia has an agenda that it pursues consistently, irrespective of who the United States president is. China has an agenda that it pursues consistently, irrespective of who the United States president is. India has an agenda that it pursues consistently, irrespective of who the U.S. president is. And I say the same thing about Saudi Arabia, about Brazil, you know, about many, many other countries. So not only is it wrong to have a U.S.-centric view of the world, it's certainly wrong by extension to have an American president-centric view of the world. So as much as it's interesting to debate what may have been similar or different in a Trump versus a, uh, you know, Biden uh, or Hillary administration of the last five, six years, I don't think that that's worthwhile. We should always spend more time understanding the world from the perspectives of India, of China, of Japan, of Russia, and so forth. Great. So now let's shift to India because internally we have had our elections and there some, seems to be an affirmation of the current government and their policies. And obviously two seasons back we had the Dokalam crisis on the Indo-China border. And recently the Pakistan president Imran Khan actually visited Russia when the escalation was about to begin. When we just look at these sort of scenarios and the way India has been neutral to the whole situation at hand, do you think India is running a risk of another escalation both on the Indo-Pak and the Indo-China side, learning from what Russia has done and ensuring that the way UN and the Security Council has, has reacted to these situations, that they would also get away by invading India? Well, there is really a gap. India's growing importance, if you look at the Quad, if you look at its role that is being thrust into the spotlight with respect to Russia and Ukraine, <laughs> if you look at its bilateral tension with China and with Pakistan, that is truly the 360-degree set of activities that is underway right now from the Indian point of view. And yet India, of course, is not a permanent member of the UN Security Council, but India is becoming ever more central to each of these very, very key geopolitical dynamics. So I think we have to first and foremost appreciate that India really is an active strategic player, status irrespective of status. That That's number one. Number two, if you recall, I mean, when, when China was, you know, made its first incursion into the, you know, Western Himalayan region, the disputes in, in Ladakh uh, over a year ago, two years ago at this point, the yeah. Trump administration said absolutely nothing. And India will not forget that that is what happened. And when they look at the Biden administration, they also see a continuation or rather a return to political criticisms of India's political system and, you know, characteristics and so on. And even though there has continued to be a strategic convergence, no question, because of China, I still think that India is rightly suspicious of everyone, literally of everyone. And again, I have spent 20 plus years advocating that countries always be suspicious, you know, and say, you know, no one will ever have your best interest at heart besides yourself. And that is what every right. single post-colonial country in the world knows very well. I spend my time, you know, educating Western leaders to remember that the post-colonial psychology is the ethos of the majority of the world's population, the majority of the world's country. So you will not get India to do what you want because it's good for you. India will do what is best for India. So we, I think we have to keep all of these things in mind. Is there a risk of escalation with China? Of course there is, but India is managing this with China in a tit-for-tat dance in which I believe that China is learning that India is very serious. 
that you cannot get away with the kind of long-term strategic maneuverings that they're trying to do, that India will push back, and India will push back hard, India will, will not give up, and India will not back down. That is something you have to learn. Pakistan, of course, has also learned. You know, you have a dramatic reduction in the kind of arbitrary and willy-nilly kind of, you know, cross-border activities and incursions. They, they know they can't get away with this. They know that India will absolutely take very, very, very severe action, and from time to time does. So these are the kinds of messages that are worth sending. It's worth doing the naval activities across the Indian Ocean, in the South China Sea, in the Andaman Sea, building up those naval partnerships with the Philippines, with Indonesia, with Vietnam, the bilateral agreement with Japan, the Quad. India must do all of these things because no one else will look at India and see all of this activity from the Indian point of view, except India. I want to shift discussion to China. So China and Russia have a history, the Bolsheviks and the expansionism of Russia before China. And now the way China is looking to expand. So you already have the Taiwan issue and several other fronts that China is playing through. And do you think it's in China's interest that Russia becomes weaker so that it could become stronger and expand or or pursue its expansionism agenda so that the countries around China are able to just accept China's agenda and move on or, or bow down to China? What's your take there? It's, it's a really long-term process. You know, I started looking at this about 20 years ago and I called it Sino-Siberia. And the map mm-hmm. of the Yuan dynasty, the post-Kublai, the, the, the Kublai Khan era, Yuan dynasty map tracks to what I call Sino-Siberia, right? An expansionist China swallowing up Mongolia and the resources of the Russian Far East. And, you know, obviously it's tempting to see that what is happening with Ukraine, misadventure and the weakening of Russia and so forth, then with Belt and Road, speaks to this process continuing onward. That is not to say, again, that it will be totally linear, right? First of all, Russia could become, again, very suspicious of this, and even if it's too late, to seek to contain it in some way, this inevitable colonization. Uh, Secondly, and I think this is very relevant to India, that, you know, because of Russia's strong ties with India, the bilateral labor agreements, the trade agreements, and so forth, are making it such that Russia could find ways to work with India as a hedge to, uh, and Japan even again, despite their tensions right now, to turn around and say, wait a minute, you know, we as Russia need to work very closely with Japan and India and others to strengthen the multilateral investment profile in the Russian Far East so that China does not simply recreate the Yuan dynasty. So there are many scenarios that may unfold. But by and large, my view on this has been consistent, you know, for for literally 20 years, that if you look at the demographics of Russia, the fiscal profile of Russia, you know, the resources of the Russian Far East, and you bring in climate change, you know, there is, it is somewhat inevitable that there will be this Asianization, you know, of the Russian Far East. So it would not be Eurasia, but Russia would be Asia Russia, I guess. It is Eurasian Russia. I mean, what basically we have been using this term North Asia, right? And when we say North Asia, we actually mean China, Japan, and Korea. But in a literal cartographic sense, of course, North Asia is Russia. The real North Asia is Russia. And Russia is becoming ever more North Asia, not just geographically, but functionally. Correct. I want to shift gears on the information war or the social media war, which is waging within Russia 
and the type of propaganda that's happening within Russia and the fallout of that could be various. So one, obviously, the social media have been now banned by Putin and the Western social media. There is also talks that Russia may follow the Chinese model of having their own internal social media. So Instagram, Facebook, all these channels have been now banned or blocked in Russia. And do you think there is a crisis if Putin falls or if Putin has to abdicate? Would that the West would come in and break up the whole of Russia into further Siberia and sub other zones and China may actually be interested in taking over annexing Siberia because of its resources over there. How do you think this whole social media war that is waging is creating the fear of within Russia of actually de-escalating within the citizens and, and, and the people who matter within Russia? No, I mean, I think, look, it's too late for that. Not only does Russia have a very long, you know, authoritarian tradition, but the obviously the suppression freedom of speech and voice and so forth has been eradicated in Russia. Some would even say it's erosion of the freedom of thought because you have such a long, you know, Putin has been in power a long time. So the self-censorship, the submissiveness has really increased. So there is no, to my mind, in my observation, and I don't see any evidence to the contrary, that Putin believes that he should lighten up simply because this war is not going well. That's not the way he operates. That's not the way he thinks. And that's not the way Russian leaders think. Other than the brief 1990s period where you had, uh, you know, efforts at uh, liberalization and democratization, but those are long, long gone. So the social media sphere, that's the domestic uh, reality. Internationally, the notion of, you know, a firewall, you know, great firewall of China and same thing for Russia. Again, that's been underway for quite some time, right? You know, their governments are becoming sophisticated at, at blocking, you know, ISPs and this kind of thing. So I think that's that's certain to continue. And, you know, the biggest losers from that, of course, are themselves, right? The societies themselves that are then starved of access to unfiltered uh, global information. There's also another issue that's emerging where China is blamed that over 90% of their servers have been hacked or, or have been used to attack uh, on uh, Russia in this information war. Do you think uh, could be surrogate situations that would also affect geopolitics and trade in Asia? Well, I think it was really striking that Anonymous, you know, the hacker group came out very early with dark warning, you know, to, to Putin and to the Russian government that there will be an all-out information campaign, a cyber hacking campaign against the Russian government. We see that playing out right now. Uh, we'll see, you know, right. what the long-term impact uh, of that is and where it's originating from and so forth. But clearly, it does not help Russia, of course, in any way, uh, given that it certainly will affect their financial position and their data integrity and their reliability as a partner and so on and so forth. So th this is certainly not good uh, for Russia. How will it affect, you know, Asian geopolitics? And again, I think that it's part of the broader re reconstruction, right, uh, of relations uh, across the region. But I think in the end, this is that plays a very small part in the overall tilt of Russia towards uh, China and any power. Great. So one thing is very clear that 
there is a geopolitical and trade shift that are happening. Let's just talk about a little bit about the, the currency ban and the, the SWIFT system that has been now blocked out out of Russia. You, and obviously cryptocurrency also banned so that there's no movement of money out of Russia or into Russia. And that's obviously created a lot of issues for businesses within Russia from Europe and businesses working in Russia from even from Asia. And talks about having a different SWIFT system uh, enabled between China, India and the Asian powers together. How do you think this whole currency and the movement of money across the region would even out or would it create two even uh, monetary blocks now? No, it will not create two monetary blocks. The world has been gravitating towards a multipolar economic system, financial system. The RMB has been rising as a trade, uh, you know, sort of unit of account in trade uh, through the dual circulation policy. Uh, RMB reserves have grown. It's not significant, but based upon comparison to the U.S. dollar, but it is growing. The same is true, of course, of the of the euro. Then you also have crypto crypto optionality, you know, whether it's CBDCs, which are in effect, of course, the stable stable coins, as well as genuine crypto itself. So there are many different directions which the future monetary system will evolve. But a, a bilateral, a sort of you know, China-driven monopoly or duopoly with the dollar is not the direction that it's going because. Until China has an open capital account, that is simply not going to happen. So I foresee the monetary order evolving the way the geopolitical order is, which is very much in a multipolar direction. Got it. So it's the same way, the way the trading blocks and the way the shift towards Asia would happen. I guess the Asian currencies and the systems would probably even even move or we may have a different SWIFT system also. So there, are, sanctions last. there aren't really trading blocks, right? I call them more trading sponges, right? You can have the trans-specific okay. nice partnership and the regional comprehensive economic partnership at the same time, right? Europe's trade with Asia exceeds its trade with the United States. So you don't have a decoupling of the world into competitive and rival uh, blocks. You actually have a fairly robust globalization that continues despite all of the obstacles. And we've seen that the pandemic was, you know, perhaps one of the greatest shocks to global supply chains. And yet global trade persisted and even rebounded very, very strongly. So I think it's important to remember that that the we cannot neatly divide or segment trade into geographic blocks the way it may appear on a map. And I think that's a very good thing. Again, payment system, it's not about exclusivity, but about overlap, interoperability, right? There will actually be interoperability between the Chinese system and the SWIFT system and so forth. And that's, again, the direction things were going. Look at the presence of union pay as a Chinese-led payment network, not only in Russia, which is full for Russian, uh, but also union pay outlets across the Western world, uh, given all of the outbound uh, Chinese uh, traffic. Uh, same is true, again, on the inbound level, with China opening up incrementally to Visa, MasterCard, and other Western payment networks. So I think that we have to not just take headlines and reify them, you know, map them onto geography in a neat and simple way. Uh, the reality will continue to be more more overlap. And even again, even if SWIFT, uh, even if Russia is expelled from SWIFT today, it doesn't mean it will be expelled tomorrow, you know. 
So we have to view this in a way where you just have multiple options. And to some degree, these options will uh, will will somehow overlap and interconnect with each other. Prag, a very pertinent question I want to ask you when we are just talking about the financial markets. You see some of the American and European investment banks and financial institutions uh, actually shut down their Russian offices and exited. Does that, do you think that it was a knee-jerk reaction? Should they have waited? before you know fully exiting russia and if they have exited do you think uh, who will then replace did it be the japanese or the chinese which are the the people or the banks who will replace them in russia as a predominant player in this part of the world and change this whole financial markets uh, system then no i mean first and foremost it's about russian banks i mean russia has multiple large financial institutions any number of them has had significant assets abroad and listings abroad, and therefore those listings have you know, had to suspend trading and their value, their share prices plummeted. But that doesn't mean that Russia does not have a large domestic ruble-based economy with Russian banks that can communicate and you know, have liquidity among themselves and with the Russian Central Bank through the MIR network uh, within the country and so forth. So Russia will function for Russians spending rubles and transacting within the economy. The question, what has happened, of course, is that you cannot have currency convertibility and, uh, and currency expatriation. Those are the big limitations for now that the Russian government has imposed. But Russia as a self-contained autarkic, if you will, kind of, you know, a uh, ruble zone is something that is going to actually cement itself. Now, in terms of goods and services, again, as we were discussing earlier, there's no question that Russia will have to import more machinery and medical equipment and, and obviously electronics, consumer goods, telecommunications, all of that stuff is going to come from China and India and, you know, eventually Japan when they reopen trade and so on and so forth. Because it will be quite some time before Western brands can simply go back and open up their shops, you know, in Russia. And again, even if they did, let's remember, it's not worth it given the currency deviation and the currency volatility. Let me take up scenarios now in terms of how the trade war and the geopolitics make it decoupled given if Russia wins this whole thing in whatever way, what do you think would be the world looking like? Would Russia emerge more stronger than the Western powers? And would that mean the world would be very different and again back to the old 70s, 80s Cold War? No, I mean, you'll have to define victory. You know, I mean, quite frankly, Russia loses even if it wins, right? I mean, gaining territory that it already de facto was controlling or influencing by proxies is hardly the definition of a good cost-benefit analysis given the costs versus the benefits. The benefits are low, even in the best case scenario for Russia, and the costs are very high, even in the best case scenario for Russia. So this can hardly be perceived in any way as a quote-unquote victory, unless you define victory as complete destruction of your rival, but also cutting yourself off at the knees and cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's your definition of victory, that yes, Russia has a chance at victory. Now, Russia does not emerge from this stronger diplomatically militarily, economically, strategically, it doesn't emerge from this stronger at all. What you might basically be positing is does he survive or not survive? And even if he does not survive, it does not mean that Putinism does not survive. Because even if he is ousted, it doesn't mean that the next person somehow is a reformer. I mean, the fact is that Iran has endured endless pain for the last 40 years. But 
it elects ever more hardline figures to the extent that they have quote unquote elections. So, you know, when you're dealing with a situation like where Russia is and you need a some amount of shock therapy, and of course that's an appropriate term given Russia's uh, history when it's up when the Soviet Union collapsed, even if you came in with, you know, a radically progressive agenda for Russia, uh, it would, you know, it would be very difficult for it to be, have traction and plausibility, you know, in, in, within the society and its execution and so forth. So, you know, this is this accelerates Russia's demise. And, you know, I've been very clear for a long time that Russia has been decay, a state of decay, irrespective of Putin's muscle flexing, armament, incursions, invasion of Georgia, Crimea, now Ukraine proper. None of this has made Russia stronger structurally. Even high oil prices have not genuinely translated into a meaningful strengthening of state capacity. So fundamentally, if you're measuring the strength of the country by state capacity, Russia remains in very big trouble and has been for, for decades. So the only victory that this would for Russia as a consolation prize would be that it has stopped NATO coming at its doorsteps and pointing those missiles towards Russia. Is this what it would end up with as a soft end to this whole situation? Well, even that is only temporary. I mean, we heard, we heard Zelensky say that he does not foresee NATO membership in the near future. But again, when we were discussing at the very beginning the potential scenarios for a settlement, there is absolutely a scenario where Ukraine does join NATO if Russia fails to honor certain terms of a peace agreement. So I again, I leave it out there that that, that too is not something that Russia can rely on. Yes, maybe in a perfect, perfect world, Ukraine would join the EU, but not join NATO, and that would assuage Russia that it does not have NATO or a very large NATO member directly on its border. But that is our rational storytelling. That's not necessarily reality the way uh, sees it. And it doesn't take into account that the West is clearly showing a good deal of unity here and might change its mind about this issue of NATO membership depending on the degree of hostility and recklessness of Putin's action. Got it. Prague, I want to shift gears, talk about the future role of Quad and India's position in the Quad in the future, irrespective of what happens to Russia. But more importantly, how China would, would make its move if Russia weakens. I would like your point of view. What's going to pan out for India's role in the Quad? Well, I, you know, it was interesting. We were discussing earlier India's role itself. And the Quad is a part of that. Now, I think, again, India's posture, India's confidence, India's, uh, you know, positioning, India's outreach, India's investments uh, are all growing. And the Quad is one part of that and we'll see how the quad evolves the quad will evolve mostly due to decisions made bilaterally between the us and india between the us and australia between japan and australia between japan and india right so the quad is the amalgamation of that and whether or not south korea is admitted and joins and so on and so forth so the quad is not the top-down representation of India's positioning vis-a-vis -vis the East. It is a reflection of it and part of it. And we'll see, you know, how the, the diplomacy evolves. It depends a lot on domestic politics. You have a new uh, leadership, of course, in South Korea. We'll see if they're for or against it, this kind of thing. Uh, Japan has a new prime minister every couple of years. See how their position changes as well. 
think the quad is a useful instrument. I support it, but it is not the end-all be-all for India. Do you think the bilateral investments that India was making in West Asia may now have to be also looked at between Indo-Russia and Indo-East Asia? And what are the theatres on which India needs to now bet very seriously? Um, again, the answer is all of the above. You know, smart country, smart powers manage multi-directional relations simultaneously. And, you know, India has said that it has a look east policy. But even as India has been advancing the look east policy, it has also been building its Gulf policy. It has also been building its Africa policy. It has maintained its relations with Russia. And it has been strengthening its relations with the United States. So in truth, India has been doing a 360 degree global policy, even if at any given moment we are talking more about the East or more about the Gulf. So if you do look at India's ties with the Gulf, they have absolutely been strengthening economically, investment, trade. And, uh, and so on and so forth. And that's very, very palpable in the Gulf countries. And that's been mutually beneficial, by and large. The same is very much true of Africa. So I reject the notion that at any given time, there is, you know, sort of, or that there is a static hierarchy of priorities. I encourage India and would endorse that India constantly nurture uh, all of these relations in its own best interest all the time, round the clock, 365 days a year. That's how great powers operate. Well, one last question before I let you go, Prague. How do you see the world irrespective of what happens to this whole escalation? Where India would emerge as uh, a power equal to China or is it India is yet going to be second to China? Uh, you know, India will not be as powerful as China, but that does not mean that there is is a strict hierarchy. There are ge- it's about geography. In East Asia, of course, China will be much more powerful than India. In the Indian Ocean, India can maintain its advantages, its naval advantages, and so forth. And it can, you know, in Central Asia, it has clearly been a second mover, a third mover behind China and Russia. But there may be scenarios where India does develop the capacity to strengthen its ties with Central Asia. Uh, for example, depending on what happens with Iran and where Iran tilts or leans. So I don't think that the, the correct way to view the world is number one, number two, number three. That's a very, very oversimplified you know, way of understanding the world. India is a great power already. India matters more in some regions than in other regions. And India's intent should be to uh, become more relevant in all regions of the world. And that's exactly what India is doing. Making these kinds of rankings is not is not helpful. You know, India followed the non-aligned nation policy. Didn't follow, support the West, didn't support the Russians or the erstwhile uh, USSR during the Cold War. Has that really benefited India at this point in time? Or India should have been far more vocal and supported Russia or uh, the other side. Where do you think India has tactically made any mistakes here? Well, again, I don't I don't believe in the term non-alignment anymore. I call it multi-alignment, the term that I coined in my first book. And I was studying powers, rising powers Correct. that... that that exercise this multi-alignment. It is much smarter to do multi-alignment than non-alignment. Multi-alignment is how you extract the maximum benefits from each of your relations, Europe with America, with China, with Russia, with Japan, with Australia, and so forth. So India is practicing a shrewd multi-alignment. This is the correct grand strategy. Non-alignment is no longer, should really no longer be part of our vocabulary. So we have made shifts from that old Nehruvian and those 80s and 90s 
90s era when the whole cold war had gone away and now you think india is powerful enough to follow this sort of alignment multi alignment that you saying to emerge stronger in asia i think that initially it was more a function of you know the government of you know Prime Minister Modi and his posture and his desire to kind of flex in that way. It's also a function of the fact that that countries around the world have become more suspicious of China and therefore really want to see India step up in various roles that in, involve uh, some degree of counterbalancing. And so I think that structurally India has been thrust position. And I think that domestically, India has sought to embrace uh, this position. And I think that globally, India's uh, economic rise has necessitated that it have this strategy. So all of those three elements are very much in place. You have the world's expectations of India, India's expectations of itself, and the structural suspicion of China. All of those three things are in place, and therefore, you can well imagine that uh, India, irrespective of who is the incumbent leader. is going to need to continue in this new tradition of multi alignment thank you so india has played its cards right uh, during this conflict between ukraine and russia uh, so far yes but of course it's day by day but in general i think that one should not you know in india's position at least not jump entirely on one bandwagon or the other bandwagon great prag it's always a pleasure to have you and talk to you and get uh, these nuggets of wisdom which we are misguided through the social media and sometimes the mainline media as well and your depth of understanding at least clear some of the cloud that we have been reading uh, across on the situation and what's india's role and how india may suffer or may emerge stronger given what it's going to be aligning with but i appreciate you taking the time and talking to us i uh, on behalf of our team here i love to wish you a happy holi and wow. thank you so much for taking the time you always been our escalation and a person who gives us the right perspective when some sort of an escalation happens and you <laughs> come to our podcast and really give us a great perspective and we really appreciate that before i let you go i would love to thank our sponsors and our team for putting this together and getting you quickly on boarded and have this podcast with you take care and yeah. stay safe you too bye bye bye